When people tell us of the events of the past, we are often told simplified versions to make the telling easier. There is no sin in doing this. Simplification is often what I do. While my actual telling of the history of London is often complex and filled with detail, even this is a deliberate simplification, often as the actual events themselves are incredibly convoluted and complicated. I say this because many of us know that in 1215, King John agreed to sign the Magna Carta, a document held up as one of the more crucial documents in English history. But as I hope this podcast has shown, one can only understand the Magna Carta in light of the events that went before it, the circumstances that dictated its arrival into the world. That has been the subject of the last few chapters. In many ways, the Magna Carta was the inevitable impact of the reign of King John, the nature of the man and his rulership style. But to understand how it came about, we've got to dive straight into the final events that triggered this conflict. We're going to start in 1214, when John was seemingly secure. He'd just seen off a French invasion, and he had made peace with the Pope. And more good news was to come. But by the end of it, we'll have good reason to see London in the hands of a new powerful political faction determined to bring this king to heel. My name is Saul, and you are listening to The Story of London, a podcast dedicated to telling the history of the city in regular weekly episodes. Each episode is intended to stand alone, but as an interesting little guide into London's history. But you can take them together, and it tells one hell of a story. And we are about to come to the final parts of what I've called Book 3 of the Story of London, The Dark Age. And The Dark Age ends with a bang. In this episode, we cover just two years where London was to find itself right in the heart of all matters political. Welcome, then, to Chapter 83 of the Story of London. Render him their slave. Odd question, have you ever heard of the Emperor Otto IV of the Holy Roman Empire? It could be argued that if you study English history, you maybe should have. You see, some years before, in 1190, King Richard I of England made a 14 or 15-year-old boy called Otto the Earl of York. Now, there had not been an Elderman of York in some time, but Richard made him so. Why? Who was this kid? Well, simply put, it was Richard's nephew. His mother, Matilda, the oldest daughter of Henry II and Queen Eleanor of Aquitaine, had married the Duke of Bavaria and Saxony. Now, through the various complicated politics of the Holy Roman Empire, young Otto and his family had ended up in exile, and Otto had come to England, and there he spent much time in the court of the Angevin king, and there he was, aged 14 or 15, and Richard makes him the Erdemann of York. Six years later, when he was 21, Richard made him the Count of Portiers, and he was closely allied to his uncle throughout his life. So closely allied that when the Holy Roman Emperor died on his way to the Holy Land during the German Crusade of 1197, which I covered last episode, Richard then sponsored this Otto to be a candidate for the big chair. 
Again, the politics of the Holy Roman Empire at the time would take way too long to explain, but to cut an incredibly convoluted story short, eventually Otto was crowned Holy Roman Emperor, in fate regalia it must be said, and as Emperor he was totally allied to his uncle, Richard, who then died. And even though Otto faced incredibly dynamic politics and contests within his own realm, and even though quite a few Germans saw Otto as a foreign king, he remained allied to his other uncle, King John of England. It should come as no surprise that when John had just about prevented the invasion by King Philip of France to place his son Louis upon the throne of England, and as the winds of geopolitics shifted in the favour of the English king, that Otto IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, was willing to commit his vast resources and forces to the cause of his uncle. But he didn't stand alone. Count Ferrero of Flanders was King John's son-in-law, a Portuguese-born noble who also wanted to curtail the ambition and arrogance of the French king. Renald I, the Count de Martin, had grown up as a childhood friend of the French king, but had been treated harshly, he felt, by the monarch, and was seeking to restore the independence of the county he belonged. So he also sided with Count Ferrero and Emperor Otto alongside King John. And alongside them suddenly came Henry I, the Duke of Brabant, the Scottish-born William I, the Count of Holland, Theobald I, the Duke of Lorraine, and Duke Henry III of Limburg, whose son awkwardly remained loyal to the French king all through what followed. This massive international alliance had been drawn together and been given papal blessing to curb the ambition of the French king, to reverse the extraordinary expansion of his territory that had taken place over the last few years, and by extension, grant King John of England his old domains, the vast holdings of the Angevin Empire of his father and his brother. John was the driving force in all of this, the instigator and financier. This was John's magnus opus, his greatest political strategy. But it was more than just a political strategy, it was a military alliance. The destruction of the French fleet near Bruges had only been the opening salvo, now came the main course. On paper, John's plan was simple. King John was to sail to Aquitaine. When he got there, he was to launch attacks north into the French king's territory. This was intended to draw the French army away from Paris to the south. With this being done, the main force, the substantive body of troops in this international alliance, under the command of the Emperor Otto, were to march south and target Paris from the north. It was a good plan. Of course, it also had many moving parts, and communications in the early part of the 13th century were certainly not perfect. John did his part. In late June, early July in the year 1214, he launched his attacks from Aquitaine. He had a couple of battles with French forces and then strategically retreated back, waiting for the trap to snare around the French king. But both the Allies and the French king moved slowly. King Philip of France sent some men south, but he quickly saw that the greater danger came from the north and so led the mainstay of his forces to intercept the Holy Roman Emperor, and Otto was surprised to find the French king arrayed to meet him. The resulting battle was called the Battle of Bouvines. Full-blown battles in this era were unusual, and this is a rare instance of medieval knights and forces meeting each other in a very large armed conflict. 
with both sides' forces numbering in the thousands, although reality check time here, we're still talking under 10,000 for both sides. And even though the English king was in Aquitaine, English forces were represented at the battle. On the left side of the Allied flank, the Duke of Brabant led his Flemish forces alongside the successful Earl of Salisbury, who had led that successful raid on the French fleet a year before. He was a man called William Longsby, who was a half-brother of King John, an illegitimate son of Henry II, and both Richard and John had recognised him as a loyal member of the extended family. Longsbury had led the English forces on the left during this battle, and on their left, on the very flank of the army, was a contingent of English archers in support. The accounts say that the Earl of Salisbury led a ferocious attack upon the enemy left and did splendidly until his horse was killed underneath him and he was captured. At this point, the English forces broke and fled, but this, coupled with the French sweeping the right flank, meant that the Battle of Bouvines is not well remembered as, say, Agincourt, Crissy or Waterloo, but that was because, in this one, the French won. King Philip of France was victorious, and the fallout from this single battle was vast. In time, Otto IV would be deposed as Holy Roman Emperor. King John had to hand over the province of Anjou to King Philip as part of the peace process. The loss of Anjou was it. The vast Angevin Empire was dead. John had lost. He had depleted his vast fortunes. He had failed to regain any territory. He was weakened. And back in England, his many enemies, they smelled blood. On the 13th day of October, 1214, King John arrived back from the debacle in France. He landed in Dartmouth and instantly found with the defeat in France and the squandering of his fortune, England was feeling rebellious. The land had suffered over a dozen years of his punitive taxations and the mood was murderous. The challenge to royal authority began with a general taxpayer strike. Quickly, the opposition started to coalesce and take shape and structure, and its early leaders, with the returned exiles Robert Fitzwalter of Baynard's Castle in London and Eustace de Vassy taking prominent positions, were the baronial class. But the rebels had to change their tactics drastically. Revolts against royal misgovernment and misrule typically took the form of rebellion in the favour of a rival claimant to a throne. Fitzwalter had tried that in 1212, but he didn't have a real claimant to get anybody to stand behind. John murdered his only true rival, his nephew Arthur, and without a legitimate rival around, in 1212 Fitzwalter had flailed about and picked a crusader lord, Simon de Montford, Simon de Montford was still around in 1214, but he was busy carving up territory in the south of France, and he had no interest in the politics of England at this time. Without someone to rebel for, without an obvious candidate, the rebels then sought something to rebel for. And uniquely in English politics to this date, they decided to take the highly unusual step of rebelling in the name of an idea as opposed to a person. And what was that idea? Simple. A detailed program of legal and governmental reform to be embodied in the form of a solemn act or charter. Now, in this, they may or may not 
have had a new ally who may or may not have come to them with the very idea itself. Who was this ally? The newly appointed Archbishop Langton of Canterbury. Now the rather prudent and conservative chronicler of the time, Roger of Wendover, claimed that a meeting took place in London on August 25th, 1214. Langton, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was attendant in St. Paul's Cathedral that day. He delivered a sermon. That much, we are 100% sure, did happen. But according to Roger of Wendover, after the meeting, Archbishop Langton led a private meeting. A private meeting with some of the barons of the region with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, given that he was Castellan of the now-destroyed Baynard's Castle, we can ask, was Robert Fitzwalter present? And he probably was. At this meeting, supposedly, the Archbishop of Canterbury reminded those present that when he'd returned to England to finally absolve John of all his sins, King John had sworn an oath before God that he would uphold all right and just laws in the land. The Archbishop quietly informed them that, as well as this, that, quote, a charter of Henry I has just now been found by which you may, if you wish it, recall your long-lost rights and your former condition, unquote. Now, what he was referring to, supposedly, is the Charter of Liberties King Henry I had hastily assembled when he took the throne of England. In his rush to prevent the claim of his older brother, Henry had usurped the order of the throne, but in the three days between the death of his brother William II and his coronation in London, he'd produced a 14-point charter, basically saying he would not do the things his older brother had done. We covered this back in chapter 56. The document was produced by the new king to secure the throne and the support of all those who were like, are you sure he should be king? And the first witness upon it, right at the top, was none other than the then Bishop of London, Maurice. Now, according to Roger of Wendover, the Archbishop of Canterbury, in that secret meeting in St. Paul's, showed the barons the coronation charter of Henry II. And then he had to read aloud what it said. Because, you know, these were barons. They're not expected to read, just hit things with swords. And after telling them what was on the coronation charter, the implication of the story is that these barons in London went, ah, that sounds like a good idea. Now, here's our problem. This story may not have happened. Even Roger of Wendover says the story he is telling is, quote, as report asserts, unquote. So even he's saying he heard it from a guy who heard it from a guy. And this is why several believe it's a nonsense story added later to make the Archbishop out to be the spiritual head of the rebellion to come. But true or not, that's the secondary issue. The, the primary issue is that the coronation charter of Henry I, the Charter of Liberties, as it's known today, did become the rallying cry for Fitzwalter and his fellow rebels. It became the basis of this new rebellion. It became a fight simply for the restoration of the rights enunciated by Henry I in his coronation charter, renewed and reborn in the form of a new charter. So that was what the original rebellion was for. Just that. I would point out, however, that if the story is true or if it's not, it is significant 
that the instigating moment happens in London. It's become significant as the story goes on. That August drifted into a wet autumn and cold winter. Christmas came around and London watched as these two factions, the king and his quasi-rebellious barons, danced around each other. Not that London itself was not busy. The year before, in 1213, the Justicar of England, a man called Geoffrey Fitzpeter had died of old age, passing away in a job in the Tower of London on the 14th of October. This guy's a small footnote in the history of the time that I have to mention because it becomes pretty important in a moment. His first marriage had been to a woman who was the sister of the last of a long line of the de Mandeville dynasty, and his sons, therefore, had taken the surname Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville, honouring their father and their mother's uncle and reviving that old de Mandeville magic back into the dynastic record. Meanwhile, in late 1214, the second mayor of London, Roger Fitzalan, had seen his term of office end, and a man called Serio la Mercer, or Serio the Mercer, became the third mayor of London, while the two sheriffs of the city who were appointed that year what appeared to be brothers, Hugh and Solomon de Basings. Mayor Serio is an important part in the story to come. He was to be mayor of London five times, and this, his first term, was to see him as mayor play a role in national politics. See, that Christmas, King John and the rebellious barons agreed to a sit-down meeting. It was time to thrash out their differences before things escalated, but as such, they needed somewhere to meet, and that's somewhere with London. As such, getting ready for the meeting, John had spent his Christmas at Winchester before hastening on to London to have a sit-down and a chinwag with his rebellious vassals. But both sides didn't trust the other. They needed a neutral meeting ground. They chose to meet in the New Temple, the headquarters in England of the immensely rich, immensely powerful, crusading order of the Knights Templar. It was located on the far western border of the city of London, but crucially, not strictly part of it. The temple was a sort of neutral privileged territory in which both John and his opponents could feel safe. At this meeting, however, we have to pay attention to the fact that leading the rebel delegation were two men off London. The first was the mayor, Serio La Mercer, and the second was the instigator of that original rebellion against John in 1212, Robert Fitz Walter. There is speculation and uncertainty as to just how much the mayor was involved in the rebellion at this point. And as someone who's specialised uniquely in telling the story of London, for me, this moment screams that at this time, London was utterly hostile towards King John. Serio La Mercer is called the Mercer, but the formal Mercer's Guild did not exist about now. It would not exist for at least a century. So calling him a Mercer referred not to an existing body, but more just his job. Serio was a merchant, one could call them merchant adventurers, men who imported and sold things. Serio was an importer, and so was Fitzwalter. As I discussed last episode, he wasn't just lord of the now somewhat ruined Baynard's castle. He imported wine. So based on nothing concrete, just the facts as we see them, and also 
what's just about to happen. I believe that Sirio the Mercer represents a faction within the Eskivins of London who'd gained control over the city in the last few years since the London Stone had died. Mayor Fitzalan had been described as a Mercer also. And for me, don't see them now as members of the guild that would exist in the future. Mercers at this time, I feel, are a more political faction. The Eskivins who sided with the reformers, who feared the erosions of London's rights. As I described back in chapter 80, London needed a strong king in order to withstand the rapacious appetites of the baronial class. But by equal measure, those rich Londoners could also defend themselves against a rapacious king by siding with a baronial class, regaining for themselves that old title London had earned during the anarchy, almost nobles. So right here and right now, as the rebellious barons sat down with the King John, coming together on Twelfth Night, the 6th of January, the Feast of Epiphany, 1215, who we see leading this rebellious baron faction were Robert Fitzwalter, the noble merchant whose castle Baynard had dominated the east side of London, and Surio the merchant, the mayor of the self-same city. This really does look like London was a big part of this rebellion. And what were they negotiating? Well, the Baron side, many of whom had arrived to this meeting armed, which was quite alarming for the King, they demand that John agreed to confirm the charter of Henry I. John, on grounds of unheard of novelty of their demands, pleaded for a bit of a delay to think about this. As the talks carried on, the lack of movement from the king and the sheer audacity of the rebels caused a hardening of attitudes in both camps. The barons, supposedly supported by some of the bishops at this point, seemed to have entered into a formal conjuratio, or sworn undertaking, to obtain the confirmation of their charter, come what may pledging themselves, quote, to sustain the house of the Lord and stand fast for the liberty of the church and the realm, unquote. They had dug in their heels, all or nothing, no compromise. They'd taken an oath to get this deal before God. But John was not in the mood to compromise either. He counted them with an oath of his own and demanded the barons swear the traditional oath of allegiance, but now with an added clause to hold with him not only against all men who would oppose him, but also against this bloody charter of Henry I they're mentioning. Both sides had dug in their heels. It was deadlock. Serio and Fitzwalter were unable to get the king to back down, and no matter how sweetly he worded things, the king could not get them to take his word that he would committed to change. John immediately sought to buy some time. He granted the barons a safe conduct, which meant to be free from arrest or menace, until the end of Easter, April 26, when he promised to meet them all at Northampton and give them an answer to their novel proposal about this charter of the previous King of England. False smiles filled the room. The meeting broke up. But the political game was on. Both king and barons used the interval to manoeuvre to gain support, 
And the king had some advantages here. He was a king, after all, and crucially, he had just restored good relations with Pope Innocent III. And the Pope, he wanted to do right by John as he'd lost his support. So now, hey, I'm in with the King of England. Let's help him. And as the date of the meeting drew closer, the Pope supposedly sent three letters to England. The first to the king was kind, written like a loving father to a slightly wayward child, asking the king to listen to his barons and kindly treat their needs with wisdom. The second letter was sent to the barons themselves, but in this the tone was more like a headmaster shouting at naughty schoolboys. The Pope was brusque, he condemned their leagues and conspiracies, he seemed to be biting down anger that some of them had turned up armed. He informed them in no uncertain terms to end their conspiracies, otherwise they would be excommunicated and informed that when they make pleas to the king, they should not be so bloody insolent. And the third letter the Pope sent was to the Archbishop of Canterbury, but in this the tone was more like a senior manager screaming at an inept middle manager. The Pope was furious, basically blaming the Archbishop of Canterbury for not having solved this issue and demanding he solves it quickly. Yet, for the conspirators... Even with this rebuke and fear of the retribution of the Pope hanging over them, things were actually too far gone. King John had shown them his nature over the years. This was a man who'd probably murdered his own nephew with his bare hands. His promises were worthless. They knew he wasn't going to do any reforms. They needed laws to back up their claims. Pope's words did little to sway them. It appears those committed to the cause were more committed than ever and more organised. As Easter approached, the two sides in this political crisis seemed to present differing faces. John was floundering. His unique court, where he ultimately trusted very few of any, left him almost totally isolated. Silly wasn't dumb. John took the oath of the Crusader, swearing to make the pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Of course, he never had any intention of going, but that wasn't the point. When you take the cross as a crusader, you see, technically, your lands were free from ever being attacked. You cannot attack a crusader attending to God's business. That ban had been powerful enough to stop King Philip Augustus from attacking King Richard Lionheart. It was an effective piece of political theatre. But within the baronial side, there was a growing confidence and organisation. And for me, proof of this is to be found in London, because I believe there was a growing militancy and belief in the rebels' cause in London. And in lieu of any document at the time that says so, I offer as proof of this the new mayor of London. Surio the Mercer had been the leader in this rebellion so far. He had sat beside Fitzwalter as they'd tried to negotiate with John that Christmas. But if me suggesting Serio and Fitzwalter may have been business associates previous to that meeting, and that's a bit, a bit much, consider who was chosen to be the fourth mayor of London, right at the heart of this crisis, a man called William Hardle. And William Hardle made his money in the wine trade. Hardle had previously served as one of the sheriffs of London back in 1207 and 1208, when the interdict had impacted upon the land. 
and Hardwell had headed a dynasty of Vinters and had holdings in Bishopsgate and Vintreat Ward. Given Fitzwalter's long history with wine importation also, I suggest it beggars belief to assume Hardwell was not partisan at this moment. For me, Hardwell's elevation to mayor is symbolic of this pro-rebel faction really gaining full control over the city, really coming all out in support of this now national cause of political renewal. As that Easter week began, so around the 13th of April, the northern supporters of the cause, the barons from up north, assembled at Stamford. They were armed and ready for war and marched south. London was now, alas, no longer a place whose feud supplied armies. The baronial class and many kings of England had eroded this power, but support was there, even if probably they did not send a large delegation of men. But out of London came Robert Fitzwalter, and as he marched north towards Northampton, he was joined by Geoffrey Fitzgeoffrey de Mandeville from East Anglia and his forces. And by the time all the groups met up and united and reached the vicinity of Northampton, they had become a substantial force. A confrontation was coming. And then John took one look and decided to break his word again. He would not come to Northampton to meet with such a powerful army. On the 23rd of April, he extended the safe conduct, which would now run until May 28th, and insisted that all negotiations be done via the Archbishop of Canterbury Langton. The rebel forces under Fitzwalter decided not to bother stopping at Northampton at this news, but marched on and came to a halt at a manor house that belonged to another name we met last chapter, Sir de Quincy, Earl of Winchester, and the man who Robert Fitzwalter had been captured alongside back in Normandy. Small world, eh? The rebels now on the estates of de Quincy changed tactics. They were not trying to put a man in charge of England, rather ideas. So when Archbishop Langton and the other royal emissaries turned up, they were given a blunt ultimatum. Unless the king immediately granted their demands and confirmed he had done so in a document which bore his seal, they would start taking the king's fortresses. It was a direct threat of civil war. Langton and the others returned to the king, whereupon they read to him the baron's demands. John denounced the rebels as vain and visionary and, quote, unsupported by any plea or reason, unquote. King John swore, quote, that he would never grant them such liberties as would render him their slave, unquote. But the audacity of the barons and the king's utter rejection at this point feels like a game of bluff. Who would fold first? The barons doubled down. On May 5th, they renounced their fealty and allegiance to the king, and they appointed Robert Fitzwalter their commander-in-chief. They understood the political power of John symbolically taking the cross, and so they retorted by giving Fitzwalter the title of, quote, Marshal of the Army of God and Holy Church, unquote. And then this army of God marched off to lay siege to John's castle of Northampton. And here they failed. This vast force was fine and dandy, but this was a castle, and they didn't have any siege engines. The attack, inspired by high passion, resulted in the loss of face and the loss of lives, including Fitzwalter's standard-bearer. They gave up on the siege, retreating, quote, in confusion, unquote, and ended up in Bedford. For the first time since this conflict started, the rebels seemed to have made a misstep. At this moment in time, violence had begun between the rebels and the king. But 
the king had lost nothing. John could still come out of this without a civil war. He could now, with the rebels seemingly having made a mistake, come out with a political solution. And so King John, in May of that year, began a very effective political initiative. It all started with his first target on the 7th of May. And here John correctly identified the importance of London. And so he decided to grant the city a new charter. Now for me this suggests that John felt perhaps correctly that not all within the city of London were behind the faction that had given us Mayors Serlio and William Hardell. It was a canny move. This charter confirmed most of the traditional liberties and gave them the right to elect their mayor every year, but it also includes some substantial concessions to the city. It was not enough to eradicate the pro-rebel faction, but it probably meant that there was tension within the city as the pro-crown oligarchs agitated that, hey, maybe we should just take this deal? We get a lot, break away from the rebels' cause. There was political tension in London going on because of this, and this is proven by later events. Two days later, however, King John played his second salvo of diplomatic and political moves. On May the 9th, he referred, quote, all the issues and articles which the barons seek of us, unquote, to a new commission. This new commission would be the body which would resolve all the issues, he said. The chairman would be none other than the Pope himself, but it would have eight barons sitting upon it, four royalists who supported him and four representing the rebels. And then, just to reassure everybody, a day later, John declared that he would not arrest the rebel barons or their supporters, nor would he raise armies, quote, except by the law of the land and by judgment of the peers in his court, unquote. This was the carrot. This was John showing he was willing to listen, he was being reasonable. All they needed to do was just sit down. King John also knew that these were men of action, so he would have to use some force. And so on May 12th, John ordered the seizure of the estates of the rebels. This would be the stick. And it's fair to say at this point that the mainstay of the barons and nobles in England were actually mostly on the fence. The nation's political future hung in the balance between the king and this growing rebel faction. But as May carried on, Everything was about politics and posturing. John had come out with a very powerful salvo, but the rebels were not inept either. Since John had said there'd be a commission who would solve the issues, well, said the rebels, let's give this commission something to work upon. And they produced very quickly a document known to historians today as the Unknown Charter. Now, it turns out we only found a copy of this a century ago, and this is where that name comes from. But this document seems to have been the charter sent that this commission would begin negotiations over. Sent to the king, so here, mull on this kind of approach. As it was, this unknown charter was simply a copy of the coronation charter of Henry I, followed by a list of 12 proposed concessions to be made by King John. 
Now, these two parts of the documents were linked with a large, very formal heading. Quote, This is the charter of King Henry by which the barons seek their liberties, and this consequentia King John concedes. Unquote. The key word there is, of course, consequentia. Consequentia is a technical term, but of logic, not of law. It meant chain of reasoning or argument. In other words, the concessions which John makes should be seen as a logical follow-on of his acknowledgement of the charter of Henry I as the statement of liberties. There's also the implication in that that the individual concessions the king had to make follow on from each other. This unknown charter then became the perfect reply to John's diplomatic initiatives of the 7th to the 10th of May. Its quasi-academic tone, established by the use of the word consequentia, was deliberately calculated for a document that was supposedly about to be placed before a former scholar like Innocent III. Ultimately, it put the ball firmly back in John's court and basically said, well, if you're serious and not full of it, this is what we need. And the irony is, if had John accepted this document, had it gone to the Pope and had it been the basis of a negotiated settlement, it could well have just ended up being, well, the resolution. Here and now, peacefully, this would be a minor political footnote in medieval English history. But John still had one last card to play. He ordered his half-brother, the Earl of Salisbury, to take some forces and march on London. It was a move identical to his order to seize the lands off the rebels. It's kind of a stick to incentivize the carrot. May 7th, here's a new charter, London. After May 12th, we're sending troops just to be in town. London wasn't in armed opposition to him. It was still just the largest city in the realm. And the Earl of Salisbury wasn't coming to seize London, just secure things. We know from later evidence there was only a small garrison over in the Tower of London. And we know that while the defensive ditch had been redug around the city, and by now that had been filled with water, the walls were not in perfect condition. In fact, they were in some disrepair, so it wasn't to place a garrison in the city to hold it. No, no, the chances are the Earl of Salisbury was coming to reinforce the Tower of London, to leave men to garrison the Exchequer in Westminster and other crucial buildings. But for the likes of the mayor and his Eschevin supporters, this was a threat, a serious one. This would potentially take them off the board as a political force behind the rebellion. And remember, if the story of the Archbishop of Canterbury showing the barons the charter of Henry II and saying, why not use this to rebel against, wasn't true, that could be a way of just explaining that London was kind of the origin and instigating place where this whole rebellion had come from. And if, as we know from later events, there were pro-royal partisans, presumably within the Eskivin class of London, if London's political class was split over this row, then for the Mercer faction in London, the imminent arrival of the King's forces to supplement his men in the Tower could have given their internal opponents the ability to remove them from power and certainly remove London from the rebellion. And so based on all this evidence we have, William Hardle, Mayor of London, working with a few other like-minded mercers, made a fateful decision. He invited the barons 
to get to London first. The first blow in the conflict that was to give us the Magna Carta was struck, not by some noble French baron. It was struck in London, and it was struck by London's mayor. Now that comment does, I must admit, stand out. I've been honestly not seen anyone suggest that London instigated the takeover of the city by the barons, but I think the source evidence, building upon what went before, clearly says this to be so. But, to prove my case... I'm going to spend an entire chapter on it. So I will end this here with William Hardle, mayor of the city, making a fateful and decisive choice. And we'll focus next episode on one of the most extraordinary moments in the city's history, the taking of London. And you will not have to wait a week for that episode as it will be coming out within the next couple of days. Yes, I'm doing a double header this week as the events around the Magna Carta are really insanely complicated. Thank you for listening, and I honestly hope you enjoyed this episode and could follow along. I know there was a lot going on. The story of London only exists due to listener support, and I would like to gratefully thank my supporters who've kept us going for another month. If you find this podcast entertaining and you can help, you can support it via a membership page over on the Buy Me A Coffee website, or you can make a one-off contribution there. Either would be gratefully received. And if you don't have the funds or simply don't wish to do that, then a five-star review or a generally positive written review would actually be amazing. So hang on to your hats, and we'll return to this later this week with chapter 84 of the story, The Barons Came to London. Thanks. Bye.